Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I interview Betsy West and Julie Cohen, the filmmakers of RBG, about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, now playing in theaters. The film looks at Justice Ginsburg's personal and professional history, including her days as a women's rights attorney when she brought cases before the Supreme Court. Mrs. Ginsburg. I was terribly, terribly nervous, but then I looked up at the justices and I thought, I have a captive audience. I knew that I was speaking to men who didn't think there was any such thing as gender-based discrimination. And my job was to tell them it really exists. The film also looks at Justice Ginsburg's long marriage to Marty Ginsburg, who was ahead of his time as a husband supporting his wife's career. I have had the great good fortune to share life with a partner truly extraordinary for his generation, a man who believed at age 18 when we met that a woman's work, whether at home or on the job, is as important as a man's. RBG is the first feature-length documentary for Betsy and Julie, but they both have deep media experience. Betsy was a producer and executive at CBS News for many years and now teaches at Columbia Journalism School. She worked with Julie on the series Makers about the women's movement. The Makers series gave Betsy her first experience interviewing Justice Ginsburg. Later, Julie interviewed Ginsburg for her documentary, The Sturgeon Queens, about New York's iconic fish store, Russ and Daughters. But those were brief encounters. Undertaking a full-length documentary on Ginsburg was a more daunting task. RBG had its premiere at the Sundance Film Festival, and I showed it at the Miami Film Festival, where I sat down with Betsy and Julie. I started by asking how they embarked on this project. Betsy goes first. About three years ago, when Justice Ginsburg's notoriety was rising. She was really becoming a pop star as the notorious RBG. Uh, Julie said to me, hey, uh, no one's done a documentary on Justice Ginsburg. And uh, shouldn't it be us? We should do it. (laughs) And I said, yes, that's because we realize that even though she is a millennial pop star for some of the dissents that she's written as a Supreme Court justice, that many people do not know the full extraordinary story of what this woman did. I only knew the amazing history of Justice Ginsburg from having heard, you know, the field tapes of Betsy's interview with her. Mm. That's how I become aware of this incredible story Mm. from the 70s. And you know, all of a sudden she's becoming this big deal rock star to people who don't really understand. Like, you think the story's great, but it's like 
actually a lot bigger than you know. She's cooler even than you think she is, was the, the thought in our head. Yeah. So this project is originating during the Obama administration uh, with probably an expectation that many of us had that Hillary Clinton was going to be our next president when your film got finished. Did that you know, change of expectation uh, affect the, the process of this film at all? Well, we were in the process of uh, filming when this all happened. So uh, certainly, I think that Justice Ginsburg has become more necessary, more important to many people. People are looking to her uh, as a bulwark of democracy. Yeah, I mean, you know, she was kind of an icon of the left uh, when we had started filming during the Obama administration. During the new Trump administration, that just increased. We, we actually had a conversation the day after Trump's election saying like, you know, because we, we didn't know how things were going to unfold. Was this going to change Justice Ginsburg's plan in, in, in general? Was this going to change her plans vis-a-vis -vis cooperating with us? And we said like, either this film, you know, isn't going to be able to go forward or it just got a lot better. Hmm. I'm curious about the factors in your own life that uh, that might fuel your interest in this subject matter. I mean, there is a constant uh, background of gender discrimination, but I wonder if there are things that you experience in your life that stand out acutely. Yeah, I mean, I came up in uh, the network news world, and at the time, when I was a young producer at ABC News, I was just so thrilled to have the opportunity to have a job that the previous generation of women were unable to do. And I think that was the attitude of many of us who went into the working world in the 70s was, we're going to prove ourselves. We're just as good as these guys. And um, looking back on it, now you realize there was a tremendous amount of sexual harassment that we just took for granted. It, it was just partly uh, uh, part of the part of the landscape. So uh, you know, my my example is when I was working at ABC Radio News, I was a young uh, producer, and uh, I'd been there for about a year, and all of a sudden I heard it was a big newsroom. All pretty much all men, and um, I'm one of the few women there. I I hear them singing "Happy Birthday," and I'm thinking, "Oh my goodness, they were they know it's my birthday. It's my birthday. This is so exciting!" And and they came around with a cart, and there was a cake on the cart. And as I approached the cake, I saw that it was in the shape of a penis. And there were you know twenty. 30 this is men. At ABC News. Yeah, this was at ABC News. And, you know, there are 20, 30 men there uh, laughing. And I just, I didn't know what to do. So, what did I do? Of course, I laughed. I mean, I wasn't going to sort of say, what are you doing? Why did you think it was a good idea to give me this cake? I just kind of laughed it off and, in a way, suppressed it. I didn't really think about it very much. Uh, we just took took that kind of thing for granted, and were extremely grateful for the opportunity to work in these jobs. Right. You thought you were being done a favor to get a job. I had a situation for in public radio where I was going to interview someone in their home studio. The guy showed up where I was interviewing for a job with him wearing his underwear. That's just what he was wearing. We did it. We conducted an entire interview in his underwear. He was wearing boxers. I was seeing the information there. Um, you know, not as a... Who, who, what I'm, was the feel? You, you're, uh, you know, you're not going to name names. Uh, uh, honestly, I, I, um, 
the the feeling I got when he opened the jo- door is like th- I'm going to get the job. I thought like you know he's not. Oh, gonna, you're being interviewed. For I'm being a interviewed job. for a job <laughs> with the, this is my this is about to become my boss. In and it was radio. just some kind of weird test, I guess, to see you know I, I, like I think there's a misunderstanding that sexual harassment is about sex, which sometimes it is, but more often it's kind of about humiliation, as Betsy's story is too. And when and justice we- when Justice Ginsburg says stuff like we we have in our film a great. Uh, description that she gives of, you know, being discriminated against at Harvard Law School. People were like, it was just part of the landscape, part of the scenery. You just like, you know, a fish in water. You don't look around and say like, why well, am in, I in water? The great, you know, David Foster Wallace story. But it, it's, th- that's what being treated like a less than person on account of your gender was like for so many of us. So when it came time to uh, reach out to Ruth Bader Ginsburg to ask her to make a film about her, how did that go? Well, very carefully. Uh, We uh, wrote an email, and then we rewrote the email, and we wrote it again, because she is known as a stickler uh, for her writing, and we wanted to make just the right approach. We finally were happy after about a week or so. And we had some... You know, people who knew her better look over what we were going to say. We were obsessive about grammar and punctuation because we know that she's very judgy about those things. So we would like, you know, just as we were about to hit send, but we would say, wait, wait, let's look at it again. Is this comma really? Is this should this comma really be in here? Do we need? Yeah, we were crazed for a couple of weeks. We sent off the email and um, we got a rather quick response from Justice Ginsburg, basically saying, not yet. Not ready quite yet. So initially, we were a little disappointed, and then we thought, well, gee, it's not no. She didn't say no. Right. right. You know? Right. So it just became like, how do we strategize? Where do we go from here? Like, I think not giving up is pretty key, particularly in the early stages of making a documentary. There's so many opportunities where you could just give up. And if you, I mean, we were disappointed for, for a, you know, a few days or a couple weeks, but then we sort of regrouped like, okay, what's our next, uh, what's our next step here? Because as Betsy said, she didn't say no. We, we noted that she hadn't quite said no. Um, so a few months later, we went back to her with a more elaborate description of what we were planning to do. And I think overtly making the point, like, you don't have to do an interview with us right now, but like, what if we were to proceed? Like, here's a list of, you know, here's sort of what we were thinking we might cover and some of the people that we were thinking we might want to interview, kind of showing that we had a real sense of her history and her story. We named some of her clients from the 70s and colleagues and, you know, friends over the years. And then we got an email back, and the first paragraph was, um, I will not be ready to do an interview for two years. However, if you're interviewing other people, you might want to consider, and she named three people, and she also named her official biographers and said you can get in touch with them. So then we thought, okay, this is happening. Do you have a sense, looking back, what that two-year time span meant? What, like, why, that, where that was coming from? I mean... She's a busy woman. <laughs> she not, not, not exactly. You know, I think, she plans ahead. I think partly she was testing our diligence and persistence. Hmm. Um, Jeff Rosen, a kind of legal scholar and journalist who's written a lot about her, wrote a profile of her in New York Times Magazine in the 90s, with the lead of which was he was approaching her for an interview in 1997. And she said to him, like, if you'll wait till 2010... 
I'll give you a big exclusive interview. And, you know, he played that as a comedy and he wrote he wrote a great piece without her doing an interview. But looking back on it, I think she might have not been facetious at all. She was just like, oh, in 13 years, I'll give you a great interview. And wow. she sort of, uh, yeah. you know, she, with us, at least it was only two. Two. I mean, seemed like a long time, two years. Yeah. But in fact, it worked out pretty well Yeah. Um, because it gave us a chance to really do a lot of filming, uh, as Julie said, with her clients, her former, her colleagues, uh, her family. And then we kind of inched our way closer and closer to get more personal access. We were following her around to some of the events that she speaks at, but then also got some access to her. Uh, yeah, she ended up giving us some access to start shooting um, a fair amount of material before that actual sit-down interview. At some point after we had started doing the substantive interviews of the friends and clients, and I think it was reported back to her that we had done our homework, that we were serious. Uh-huh. This wasn't just about like, oh, cool, the notorious RBG. This was like we were right into the meat and bones of the early cases she argued before the court. So at one point, her assistant sent us a list of about a dozen events, like here are some things that the justice will be doing over the next year that she thought might make interesting filming opportunities for you. Yeah. I mean, that was why we wanted to do this film. I mean, her her story as a pioneer for the women's rights movement um, is known within the movement, but not largely known. She argued a series of cases uh, before the Supreme Court that changed the law of the land for American women in the early 70s. And, and we wanted to tell that story. And we were lucky that some of her clients are still around. And we were able to interview the clients and really also with the help of the Supreme Court's audio archives, which are tremendous, you can hear the young Ruth Bader Ginsburg arguing these cases before nine male justices. And it's very dramatic. Uh, Nina Totenberg uh, figures very prominently uh, in this film. Uh, she seems to be Justice Ginsburg's kind of go-to person for doing public interviews. They have a strong rapport, uh, and you know, and she doesn't hold back, uh, you know, asking tough questions of of the of the justice. Yes, uh, Nina was initially like on our first list. She was one of like. We were planning to interview three or four journalists to, you know, give perspective on Justice Ginsburg. Um, Betsy did the, did the interview of Nina, and when we started roughing pieces together, she just popped so much. She's like such a great character in her own right. She knows so much about the justice going back to before the justice, not only before she was a judge, uh, a justice before she was even a federal judge. They, they've known each other. Um, since uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a lawyer and she was so great and it became clear that she would be like not just an expert but kind of a character that we really made her the central kind of expert figure on on Justice Ginsburg's career. And you're right. They are friends. They've known each other for a long time. But Nina does not hesitate to ask the tough question of Justice Ginsburg. Uh there's a, there's a real love story at the heart of this film that was also unexpected to me. Can you describe how you honed in on that? Well, when I initially interviewed Justice Ginsburg, uh, her husband had only been dead for a year. And I remember during that first interview, when I asked her, I, you have a certain amount of time at the uh, Supreme Court, and they're looking at their watches, and okay, your time is up, your time is up. And I said to her, you know, could you could you tell me a little bit about Marty. And her face just lit up and she started talking for about 10 minutes. And it didn't matter that the Supreme Court people wanted her to leave. She wanted to talk about 
her late husband. She loved him so much. So we knew going into this that there was a tremendous love story. They had met as students at Cornell. Um, but what we didn't know and what we discovered was some of the archive material that, you know, you can explain that arrived in the mail one day. Yes, her biographers, um, her, her official biographers who are uh, Georgetown University law professors who've been working on a book about her for about 15 years now and collecting all kinds of amazing material, just offhandedly mentioned to us at one point, oh, you know, there's a bunch of really beautiful home movies that we have somewhere that we got from her late husband's fa family. Like, mm, maybe you'd be interested in seeing those. <laughs> we were all, you know, I mean, you know how that is. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they write print books, so like they don't understand what that means. We're like, oh my God, how do we get that? And we said, could, you know, could you ask the justice if it's okay to send it to us? And if so, will you send it? And one day in the mail arrived a DVD. Uh, we popped it in. The actually, the first uh, hour and a half of it is, um, you know, Marty Ginsburg as a child with a bunch of people that I don't even know who they are. So they're like, is there, is there? And then, and then, you know, an hour and a half in comes this unbelievably beautiful footage. Romantic footage of them uh, at Cornell, uh, Marty being kind of goofy because he was a very outgoing, extroverted guy. I mean, that's part of their love story. He was the outgoing one. She was the shy one. And then her graduation, they're on the honeymoon. It's so romantic. And, you know, people always say Justice Ginsburg was a very beautiful young woman. Well, when you see this footage, you will understand. You don't have to say it. <laughs> you don't have to say it. And the clothes, her clothes, yeah. <laughs> so fantastic. She, yeah, but, you know, what she said about Marty was, you know, she was obviously a beautiful young woman. She said he was the first boy who was interested in her for her brain. And more than that, he had a unique sensibility for a man of his age uh, in terms of giving his wife uh, a lot of room to pursue her career. Extraordinarily supportive uh, at that time. He was a very successful tax attorney, but when she was appointed uh, to be a federal judge, he uh, moved to Washington to be with her. And uh, he supported her every step of her career. And when it came time that a Supreme Court chair opened up, um, it was really Marty more than her who thought, like, this should be hers. She deserves this and, you know, lobbied at every step uh, to make her the next Supreme Court justice, a position that he just felt she was worthy of. Um, you know, it's a, our story is obviously a women's story and a feminist story. So there's this interesting component of like, you know, we're making a man a big part of it. But to me, that's like a great twist. You hear it's it's sort of turning on its head the cliche that, you know, behind every man, there's a great woman. Because in her case, there was an incredible guy, totally a genius himself, amazing personality, who was willing, you know, in a sense, to subvert some of his own career ambitions to jump in with raising the kids with all of the cooking and to push her career forward in a way that actually women have been doing for like top, you know, top tier guys for centuries. Yeah. And he would make a joke about it. They would joke about the fact that she couldn't cook. I mean, in, in the film, you'll see the children joke about the fact that they won't allow her in the kitchen. Uh, he was just, as she said, so self-confident, so sure of himself and proud of his wife and, and pushing her forward. So one of the uh, pieces of tape you have is uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg reading a letter 
that her husband wrote essentially on his deathbed. And she reads it with remarkable composure. I don't think anyone in the audience has as much composure listening to it as, as she has reading it. Uh, can you talk about th that piece of, of audio? Uh, Nina Totenberg interviewed Justice Ginsburg, and uh, several years ago, she knew that uh, Marty Ginsburg had left a letter basically saying that he had fought the fight against cancer and that he thought that it was probably time to let go. It's a very moving letter, and uh, Nina asked uh, Justice Ginsburg to read it, which she did, and um, at the end, she breaks up just a tad. Uh, she says, uh, and and Nina says it's breaks the up is almost putting it too strongly. <laughs> she she, she stumbles exactly quiver. a mild <laughs> quiver. Yeah, I would I could not emotion. love you a jot more yeah. a jot. Yeah, it just. Uh, uh, and Nina says it's really the only time she'd seen her uh, lose her composure. I mean, she was in the court the day after her husband died. She felt that uh, that's what he would want. He would want her to, uh, to go on. It was a beautiful letter. It was emotionally read in that radio interview. And um, But we feel like our editor, Carla Gutierrez, really elevated it to the next level with the way she combined that that emotional the quietly emotional audio with the in incredibly moving still images that by by the time that you see them are sort of repeat images of the couple uh, together in slow motion both for art reasons and for very short, you know, the, the, the way people used to shoot home movies uh, back, mm -hmm. in the, back in the 50s, they'd, they'd, be, they'd be on someone for like four seconds and then they'd jump to the next thing. Right. So uh, we, uh, Carla literally used every frame of that footage that existed <laughs> um, and, and beautifully and sort of the two things together just, you know, bring out the emotion uh, amazingly well. So you spend several months interviewing other people uh, and interviewing her, Ruth Bader Ginsburg at public events before you get up to this date that she set for you, two years in the project, uh, where you can actually interview her. Um, so w when th that came around, uh, can you describe you know, what the kind of protocol was to, to finally start filming with her directly? We were actually lucky that Justice Ginsburg had said to us uh, two years from now, because it did give us the time to not only interview all these people, but also to begin to shape the film. So the film was in a rough cut state. And we also had listened to many other interviews that she had done, uh, talks that she had given. So we knew um, what she had already said and where we needed to hone in a little bit deeper, the kinds of questions that we needed to ask. So we were prepared for that. When you interview a justice at the Supreme Court, it is very prescribed, and they give you a certain amount of time. And we were given a total of an hour and a half with her, which is not that much time if you're doing a film about somebody. But because we had all this other material, it worked out. So just how intimidating is it to interview Justice Ginsburg? It is intimidating, uh, but she is uh, because she's a she is a uh, reserved person. She's not 
chatty Kathy. <laughs> she doesn't fill the spaces all the time. And um, so sometimes your temptation is to fill the spaces for her. And for me, I had to just hold back on that to give her the time to uh, say what it was that she wanted to say. You know, there were always people around watching and, you know, the people from, from the Supreme Court. But it felt pretty intimate and focused. She was ready to talk. And um, it was engaging for me. And then uh, Julie showed her a few of a few moments. <laughs> yeah, we had gotten the, the court to agree to let us show her some clips, although without having to say what the clips were going to be. So the Saturday Night Live um, clips did come as a surprise uh, to her, which we were really hoping. We were afraid if we had to pr get that pre-approved somehow that someone would show it to her, her um, uh, Justice Ginsburg's grown children had said that she had heard about that stuff but hadn't hadn't really seen it before. So that was like, oh my God, we have to show it to her. And so this is the the Kate McKinnon the Kate McKinnon impression, impression of, of her uh, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Saturday Night Live doing like a crazy dance and doing her "You've Been Ginsburned" thing, and um, we played it for her with no introduction whatsoever, and she just. Um, she just loved it. She like, said, her first thing was, oh, is this Saturday Night Live? Right, right. And then she started laughing, laughing. so hard. Uh, she just was just doubled up with yeah. laughter. It was really adorable. Here is this woman making fun of her, and she just thought it was hysterical. She has an amazingly sharp, good sense of humor, and I think you see it. And then Julie had the wherewithal to ask her the great question, does it remind you of yourself? <laughs> yeah, she, which she was already laughing at that thought and then just said, like, not, not at all. And then she thought that there's always a pause after everything she says. And if you, you know, she actually has a great sense of comic timing. She's like, not at all. Pauses for your seconds, except for the collar. You know, because <laughs> Kate McKinnon is, in fact, dressed um, like she does. But, you know, she has this great sense, great, pretty loose sense of humor. The stuff that made her laugh the most was, you know, Kate McKinnon's impression of her on Saturday Night Live is a little bit raunchy. She's like touching her <laughs> chest and whatever. And like that was the part that the real Justice Ginsburg seemed to think was the funniest. She was laughing so She's hard. She was laughing so hard. Yeah. So, so that, was a, that was a nice moment. So the interesting thing about that is uh, her uh, grown children in the film uh, described that when they were kids, they, they kept a book called Times When Mom Has Laughed. Mommy Laughed was the name of their book because um, she was a more serious presence in their house. And they say that. They say their father was a, a very funny guy and he lightened the mood and, and it was to the benefit of everyone. I, I understand what their experience must have been, but it is a little bit of a contrast because she does come across as having such a good sense of uh, humor in the film. I wonder if you perceive if that's something that's uh, come out more in, in her life. Yes. I mean, what we've heard from people is that is very true in the past few years, partly since Marty's death in 2010, and also with just the elevation of herself as, a, you know, so much of a public figure and so much out there um, with young people. I think we, our hope in the film was that we'd be sort of creating a little bit of a, an arc in that sense of you're thinking of her as being pretty, um, you're seeing her early in her career and how serious and how uptight. And now, you know, uh, you get to be 85, all of a sudden, uh, maybe, maybe you can loosen, maybe you can start have, having a little more fun. It's not how we think of public figures. It's not how we think of elderly ladies, but you know, 
this is a fun time for her, yeah. I think, in many I'm, ways. It is, although she still works tremendously hard. Uh, we, we witnessed this. She still, her children say, she still is writing uh, opinions into the night. She's a very dedicated, hardworking woman, but she has embraced uh, this new chapter in her life, really the, the post-Marty chapter and the, her, her, her notoriety. Um, she's, she's gone with it. One of the things you do that I think is very effective is you'll sometimes have recordings of her or recordings of, uh, of other law that was passed in maybe in the 70s, and then you'll have her reading from some of those opinions um, now, and it kind of creates a bridge between the past and uh, and the present. And, uh, and the way you've done it, is, it almost looks like she's memorized every opinion that she's uh, given, but I take it that she was reading some of these things. She was reading, but we think she uh, certainly probably could have recited some of them. Yeah, I mean, you know, partly that was meant to address a central challenge of the film is like, how do we bridge the past and the present? We knew that a lot of a film was historic, and yet we didn't want to lose sight of RBG today, the figure that is most well-known and and loved of um, the personas people know of her. So um, that was the idea of that. And while we did, I mean, if we had just asked her, like, read some of your favorite stuff, like, Lord, uh, you know, she probably could have done it from scratch. But obviously, we knew what we had the old audio tape of, so we knew what we needed her to read. And um, we had made some internal edits in her uh, in her 1970s uh, Supreme Court arguments. And in cases where we had made an edit, when we handed her a sheet of paper saying what to read, she noticed what we had changed. Oh, well, but you took, you took out the line about the Justice Department's preclearance of Section 4, you know, slash A3, which, yes, we sort of, we were doing that on purpose because we were trying to make it make more sense to a, you know, a non-lawyer audience. But, like, there was not a change that we had made that she that she didn't notice, even you know, from from more recent opinions, but even going back to her 1970s cases. Uh, so one of the things that you were able to film with her is uh, her workout uh, uh, routine. Uh, can you talk about doing that? Well, this was something that we always wanted to film from the beginning because she's talked about the fact that after her uh, cancer surgery, she uh, needed to really uh, get some strength back and that she had a regular workout routine every uh, couple of weeks. So this was always in our mind, but we realized that we couldn't just like blurt it right out at the beginning. Oh, yes, and we want to go to your gym with you. So we waited and we filmed, as um, Julie said, we filmed many of her appearances around the country. We were interviewing people. And uh, I guess it was about a year ago, we um, went to meet her in her office to ask for some access to some more personal uh, moments. We wanted to be able to film her working at her desk and her desk at home as well, a meeting with um, her daughter, uh, her granddaughter, uh, Clara, and then the final ask was, and, and could we film you working out in your gym? There was a pause, and then she said, yes, I think that will be possible. Almost as if she was expecting the question, question. Yeah. as I think yeah. about it. Almost yeah. as if she'd been sort yeah. of expecting us to ask this. And um, we, of course, were thrilled, but we 
tried not to scream and yell right there in the justice's office. We kept our composure and we waited to do that. And we got out on the sidewalk in front of the Supreme Court because, you know, we thought this is a really important part of the story. Here is a older woman keeping herself in shape because she really wants to keep going. And um, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, we did not expect her to say yes, frankly. Um, neither did anyone around her, her staff members <laughs> later, to, her staff and her trainer. When he, when she, you know, we, we sent him an email the next day saying, you know, Justice Ginsburg has said you can, we took a couple weeks for him to get back to us. And then he, you know, called and said, you know, I said to the justice, did you agree to let these ladies in to film you exercising? And she said, yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we were pretty excited. Maybe that's another carefree thing of being in your 80s. I don't think I would let someone film my uh, meager training sessions. You know, I think when we got in the room and we're there, we're kind of, Julie and I are cowering in the corner so that you can't see us and the, the two, two cameras are there and immediately realized why she did it. She is proud of this. She's proud of what she's doing. And why not, you know? Just she is a role model for young women, and she's a role model for older women. We had told the camera people, like, even if she's really not doing the push-ups and it's, like, not working out, because we just thought it wasn't going to be quite what it was uh, worked out to be. Just keep rolling, you know, no matter what happens, even if it seems like she just keeps getting camera. And they rolled solid for 30 minutes, and she didn't stop exercising that whole time. And she, she does the 20 push-ups. She does the plank. She's lifting the weight. She, she literally did a workout routine that, you know, that I couldn't do. And it's, it's not just, you know, it's not just that she's in her 80s. It's that she's quite small and has been through two serious bouts of cancer. I mean, it's, this is pretty cool. Very, very determined. She didn't look at us once. She just did her workout. So uh, what was the hardest question you had to ask her? Um, I think the hardest question to address was uh, her comments about then-candidate Donald Trump, uh, in, in which she had said some negative things about him, and to, to ask her about this, and the idea that perhaps uh, it made her, you know, it questioned her, uh, impartiality as a as a justice, I think she had a very strong and and good answer to that. It, it's something that in your film you document many close associates and close friends of hers being critical of that. Yeah, people people were surprised uh, when she said these things, and um, within a few days she had apologized, and and she had said. It would have been best had I not said anything. And yet from the time that that had all happened in the summer of 2016 until the interview in the summer of 2017, and now, of course, with Trump actually as the president, the issue really had only become more sensitive. Um, but it was something, obviously, we had to address um, in the film and, you know, probably the most awkward uh, moment in that, in that room in the Supreme Court. One of the more surprising things about her is uh, her friendship with Justice Scalia, uh, who was uh, on the other side of the political uh, spectrum uh, from her. Um, one of her, you know, close friends uh, says in the film that it's kind of inconceivable to to her to um, 
to be friends with someone whose uh, political opinions are so uh, far from your own. Um, can uh, you talk about you know how you approach that uh, aspect of 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 RBG's career? Yeah, well, that's a you know that's a part of her story that was fascinating to us and fascinating to almost anyone that we talked to about it was like the the relationship with Scalia. It was unfortunate you know, from our perspective that by the time we started shooting that uh, Justice Scalia had already passed away because obviously having him in the film would have been wonderful. He is in the film quite a bit, but being able to to interview him instead, uh, we interviewed his one of his sons. Um, You know, the relationship between them is is fascinating. I mean, you were politely paraphrasing what uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, friend uh, said, but basically the phrase that her friend used was right wing nut job. Um, (laughs) Certainly how Justice Scalia was viewed by many on, you know, kind of the team RBG liberal side. But I think it's actually an important aspect of Justice Ginsburg throughout her whole career that that's not how she sees it. Um, She and Justice Scalia actually were friends on a personal level. They had very similar legal views on the arcane, you know, subject of um, civil procedure, an area of law they're both really interested in. So, you know, there was a fair amount for them to agree upon, but also differences of opinion, obviously, on the ideological cases. Many people don't believe that they were friends. People ask us, was she really friends with Scalia? She's sort of pretending to be friends with him? No. She was really friends with him. She loved his sense of humor. As we said before, she loves to laugh. He was a very funny man, and she appreciated that. And I think she uh, respected his intellect. Uh, They both believe in uh, legal institutions. They both strongly believe in that, believed he he believed in that, and... um, They also believed in collegiality. That's very important to her, that we have civil discourse. I think that's also another message of of the film. Uh, Her point is that we need to talk to each other. We should not be screaming at each other. Uh, And uh, she had a dialogue with, with Justice Scalia. They didn't come to any resolution over it, but they were able to talk about their differences. Uh, I'm curious, do you, do you think he was ever swayed by her over things? Um, I would say no. I don't think either of them was swayed by the other on the matters that are, you know, most important from the out, the, 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 the big legal ideological arguments about how the Constitution should be, should be viewed. I don't think they swayed each other. They both made the point that spar the intellectual sparring they felt made their own arguments stronger they had a habit of giving each other you know dissents in advance of when the other justices were going to get the dissent so that they could you know sharpen their own opinions that that happened um you know and, and justice ginsburg speaks uh with great pride uh that justice scalia gave her an advance look at um what he what he was writing as a dissent to her um virginia military institute uh her very important opinion opening up the virginia military institute to women um so they 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 each felt like they sharpened one another's arguments but no i don't think there was a lot of change those are two minds that are not going to be uh swayed too often I think that's right. Um, I want to ask from a filmmaking process uh, question, how the two of you work together? Um, Well, it's a fabulous collaboration, really. Um, We have a lot of respect for each other, 
and um, we have very similar opinions about many things, and I think a very similar sensibility. And when we disagree, it's often uh, easily resolved. I, I don't know. It, it was it, it was a great collaboration. We you know we've known each other for some years, but we'd never worked together this intensely, and um, it was fantastic. And on something this difficult. Uh, to do a film about a sitting Supreme Court justice, it was fantastic to have a partner to talk about the challenges. Yeah, I feel like we went into it not really knowing how it was going to work out. I mean, that even came out because because we knew each other. We had you know we had worked on a few things you know you know much less intensely um, together. Have some close mutual friends, but like. You know, something that came up to me just like, well, the worst that can happen when you're working with a friend is you end up hating each other. Like, yeah, we're not that close anyway. So, like, so we, so, you know, so if we hate each other, like, whatever. And as it turned out, it was really a lot of fun. I think part of the secret of it is that basically when we had disagreements, we tended to have them out loud. We'd be like, yeah. oh, no, 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 I don't, we're not, what are you talking about? We can't do it that way. And she would be like, yes, we can. That's the best way to do it. But the, the arguments, um, really w would always be about how to improve something rather than like when we saw something and this was really you know in a, in a becoming a three-way thing also with with Carla our, our our editor like Betsy and I tended to really agree almost always you know 98% on whether we liked you know a, a little pee, a chunk or not and the question was when we didn't like it what our thoughts were about how to how to fix how it. to move forward yeah and i think we from the very beginning and i i credit julie with doing this we really made an effort to be a team to the world and to everybody that we were interacting with we were signing our emails Betsy and Julie or Julie and Betsy and um we really did consult with each other on anything uh, significant. You know, we divided up some responsibilities, yeah. obviously, and so we weren't, you know, bothering each other with yeah. those things. I mean, there's, a, you know, a big project. There's a lot of insignificant crap that has to get done, so it was kind of good. And we were dealing with so many important people on this project also that we didn't really have the luxury of foisting stuff off onto a junior person. Like, we're talking, I mean, when you're, dealing with Gloria Steinem's office, like you want them to be dealing with the top person. So, and that's not just gonna be one email, like, hey, can we show up in your apartment doing it? No, that's gonna be a months long process of talking and negotiating. So, and because there's actually a lot of interviews in this film, I think around two dozen, like it was good that we could divide up the people so that all the back and forth for each one was with one of us. Some of the times we would share with each other. If it was just boring logistics, we would handle it yeah. ourselves, but the volume of work ended up yeah. really requiring uh, the two of us. So we would split that. But in terms of shaping the film, that was right. totally collaborative yeah. from beginning to end. So uh, as I wind this up, I want to uh, ask about the experience of finally showing the film to uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. How did that take place? Well, um, we wondered whether or not Justice Ginsburg would ask to see the film in advance. And she never did. And then we were accepted into Sundance, and we got in touch with her office and said, would she like to see the film at Sundance? And, and Sundance also issued an invitation to her to come and give a talk, and yes, she would, and thinking, well, maybe she's going to want to see the film. No. She flew out to Park City on a Saturday night, and um, she had the talk and you know, series of events, and then the screening happened at 5.30, and we were sitting across the aisle from her when she saw the film for the first time. 
We literally watched her. We weren't looking at the screen at all. We wa we spent the whole film watching watching the film basically literally like reflected in her eyes and her glasses. Um, and it, it was like an incredible experience. I mean, like, you know, as many screenings as we go to the rest of our lives, I don't think there's ever going to be an experience like watching Justice Ginsburg, watching her life as presented through the lens of our film, like in the setting of Sundance. Um, and, you know, she laughed, she cried, she pulled out tissues. It was, it, was, it was pretty fun. It was pretty amazing. And then, you know, at the end, um, when we were called down to do the Q&A, we had our team of women up there uh, to take applause. And then the first question uh, to us was, what does Justice Ginsburg think about the film? And she stood up and down to the front she went and she was not she, meant to be uh, part of the Q&A as in a scheduled not, that way that was not the plan that, yeah. was, that definitely was not, not what was the scheduled. plan we hadn't asked we didn't think we could ask her to do that we just felt okay um, and she was incredibly gracious and kind and she said that it had exceeded her expectations at which point Julie and I looked at each other and we were both crying and we tried to pull ourselves together in Ruth Bader Ginsburg form and not lose it. Um, yeah, it was very, it was very moving. It was she a took, moment. It was a yeah. moment. She took <laughs> it questions. It was great. Yeah. They asked her, how did she like Sundance? She said, Park City is very beautiful. It reminds me of Switzerland. And Robert Redford is still very handsome. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank Betsy West and Julie Cohen for speaking with me. Their film RBG is now playing in theaters. This interview was recorded in March during the Miami Film Festival. Thanks to Miami filmmakers Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman for lending me their office. Hear my interview with them on episode 42. And thanks to our team, series producer Sarah Modo, sound mixer Tom Micah, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. I invite you to listen to our short form podcast, Documentary of the Week from WNYC. You'll find over 160 documentary recommendations. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. <laughs>